Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Last Lord's Day, we began to look at the two representatives of the human race, Adam, the first man, and Jesus Christ, the second man, or the last Adam. And we saw that every man and woman in this world is in union with one or the other. We are in union with Adam by birth, and we are in union with Christ by faith alone. And we are, by union, we are given all that each of them has to give to those who are in union with them. And with Adam, we are given everything that belongs to Adam. And in Christ, we are given everything that belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw two contrasts last week. The first was that in Adam, we have guilt, and in Christ, we have righteousness. And the second contrast that we saw was that in Adam, we have pollution, and in Christ, we have sanctification. This evening, as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we finish this short series with a third contrast between Adam and Christ, and it is that in Adam we have alienation, and in Christ we have fellowship. We speak here in terms of our relationship with God, that in Adam we have alienation from God, and in Jesus Christ we are restored back into fellowship with him. God made Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as the pinnacle of his creative work, They were made in his image, in the likeness of God, and they were in innocence and holiness in the beginning. And part of the image of God is that they were communicating and they were relational creatures, that they could speak with God and God could speak with them, and so there could be fellowship between God and the man and the woman. And we see this right in the beginning when God first made the man and the woman in the garden that he could speak to them and say, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule. And then we see here in chapter 2 and verse 17, 16 and 17, that the Lord could speak to the man in verse 16 and command him that from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And then as we look over to chapter 3 and down to verse 8, we read, And they, Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so Adam and Eve, they would recognize they heard the sound of the Lord God as he came walking in the garden. And this is what we would call a theophany or a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus in human flesh. And so there was the actual sound of his footsteps as he came walking in the garden. And he would do this in the cool of the day 
which seems to mean at the close of the day, when the work of caring for the garden was finished, when the sun began to set and the cool breezes of the evening began to move through the garden, it was then at that time that the Lord would come walking in the garden to meet with Adam and Eve and to have fellowship with them. It was a garden of paradise, a garden of perfection. And we read in chapter 2, back in chapter 2 and verse 9 of the trees of the garden, so pleasing to the sight and good for food. Verse 9, out of the garden, out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that, was, that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then there was a river that flowed out of the garden in verse 10. Now a river flowed out of the garden to water, out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The word Eden means pleasure and delight. and That is what the Garden of Eden was. It was a garden of pure pleasure and delight. And everything was very good, and it was a perfect paradise of joy and happiness for the man and for the woman. The highest joy and the highest delight when they were in their innocence, and that which gave them true happiness and satisfaction to their souls was their fellowship with the Lord with them. That is what they desired every day above all other things, at the end of the day, to hear the footsteps, the sound of his footsteps as he came to walk with them in the cool of the garden. It was then time for them to be in his presence, in his special presence there. And it was time for them to draw near to him and have fellowship with him. And it was the fulfillment of God's desire that we find so often in other passages of the scripture to dwell with his people. I will dwell among them, he says, and I will be their God and they will be my people. And the Holy Spirit was upon Adam and Eve in all of his fullness, giving spiritual life to their souls. And Adam and Eve, they knew the love and the fellowship of all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as the image bearers of God, they had capacity to understand and to appreciate the glory of God as it was seen in all of the creation and to respond to him with worship and praise and adoration. The tree of life was in the midst, in the center of the garden. It was among those trees that God said to Adam and Eve that you may eat freely. And they did eat from that tree of life at first. Not that that tree had any life-giving power in itself, for all life came from God. But the tree of life in the midst of the garden, it was the symbol of their spiritual life and fellowship with God. And as they ate from the tree of life, it was the outward expression of their inward spiritual life with him. A garden that was full of life and the God of life giving life to all things and Adam and Eve 
full of life with God in fellowship with him. But this fellowship with God came to a sudden and most tragic end. When Adam disobeyed God's command and ate from the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the Lord came into the garden and he cursed the serpent and the devil who had tempted them. He pronounced a curse upon the entire creation as we read in chapter 3 and verse 17. Chapter 3 and verse 17, at the end of the verse he said, Cursed is the ground because of you, in toil you have eat, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And then, because of their sin, the Lord cast out the man and the woman out of the garden, as we read down in verses 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. In the beginning of verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man, the man has become like one of us. He is speaking here of Adam as the representative of the human race. He says, Behold, the man has become like one of us, like one of the three persons of the Trinity, knowing good and evil. Not knowing good and evil in the sense that he submits to the authority of God, but knowing good and evil in the sense that he now makes his own standard of good and evil independently of God and without regard to him. And because of their rebellion, there was now a complete break in their fellowship with God. There was an alienation and a separation there could no longer be access into God's presence in the garden from which the fullness of life came. And no longer could they be allowed to eat from the tree of life, which was the symbol of that life with him. Adam and Eve, they had physical life and spiritual life. Eventually, their physical life would be taken from them in death, but immediately their spiritual life with God came to an end. And they were, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, now dead to him, dead in their trespasses and sins. And the Garden of Eden, which was the place of God's special presence, where he dwelt in his holiness with all of his life-giving power, nothing unclean could ever be in his presence. And so Adam and Eve, now full of sin by their fall, had to be expelled and banished out of God's presence. And God here was casting them out. And in doing so, he was cleansing his temple. They did not leave voluntarily. He had to drive them out of the garden, as it says in the beginning of verse 24. So he drove the man out. 
And there was no re-entry for them. There was no re-entry back into the garden as is seen by the supernatural means that God took to guard the entrance of the garden. In the rest of verse 24, at the east of the Garden of Eden, which was the entrance to the garden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. The cherubim were, the cherubim were mighty angelic beings from the throne of God. And a cherubim came down from heaven, and a cherubim, a mighty cherubim, was stationed at the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword in his hand, which he turned in every direction as a symbol of God's judgment. And the message was clear. Immediate death would come upon anyone who dared to try and enter again into the garden and to the tree of life. Man was banished now, and he was exiled, separated from fellowship with God. And no longer could he enter in to the presence of God, and he was cast out now from the garden into the hostile world and alienated from the God who made him. And what was true of Adam and Eve was now true of all their posterity. Their banishment became our banishment. Their alienation became our alienation so that no man or woman was ever welcome now into the presence of God and the entire human race had lost its fellowship with him. And there was no way that any man could ever achieve entrance back into that garden and that temple of God. The mighty cherubim was stationed with a flaming sword turning in every direction to show that access now into the presence of God was now impossible by anything that men could do. Only the Lord, only the Lord could ever open up a way of access back into his presence once again. Just as the guilt of Adam and the pollution of Adam was passed on to all of his posterity, so now the alienation of Adam was passed on to all of us as well. In Adam, we have alienation from God, and this is why all men are born into the world without the knowledge of God or the life of God in their souls. They are separated from him, they have a sense that he is there, but their minds are in darkness and their thoughts are filled with vanity in regard to who he is. And they have no relationship and no access and no entrance into his fellowship and no, no fellowship with him. But as God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, in great mercy he did so and at the same time gave them reason to hope. And in two ways he did this. First, by that first gospel promise of a Savior, 
which we read of back in chapter 3 and verse 15. And there God said to the serpent in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, suggesting a collective struggle between the offspring of the devil and the offspring of the woman. And then he said, you, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel, suggesting a climactic struggle between one individual offspring of the woman who would conquer the devil and his works by the crushing of the head of the serpent through his own sufferings. And we know from the rest of the Bible that this promise came to be fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the sufferings of his cross, he destroyed the works and the power of the devil and he crushed the serpent at the cross. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, since then children, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, became the seed of the woman, that through death he might render powerless, powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And Paul writes in Colossians 2 and verse 13, having been forgiven all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, nailed it to the cross, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He disarmed them, the spiritual powers of darkness at the cross. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him at that cross. The second thing God did before he exiled the man and the woman from the garden was to provide clothing for them, which is what we see in verse 21. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and for his wife and clothed them. We notice those words in the beginning of the verse, the Lord God made. Those words have not been used since the creation of the six days back in Genesis chapter 1, where we read there that God made the expanse of the heavens. God made the sun and the moon and God made the beasts of the earth. And then on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work which he had created and made because he was done with all of his creation. But now here he is making, he has made something new. He is making something new for the man and the woman. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and for his wife and clothed them. Where did the Lord get the garments of skin for them? The answer is from the animals of the garden. The Lord put the animals to death, which was the first sacrifice and the first shedding of blood so that the man and the woman could be clothed to cover the shame, to cover the guilt of their sin. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, they thought that they had clothed themselves sufficiently with the fig leaves of the garden but they still felt the shame of their sin and they had to hide themselves among the trees of the garden. 
How cheap were their efforts to cover sin by a few fig leaves strewn together. How costly was God's covering by death and by the shedding of blood. How vain were their efforts to deal with the problem of sin. And the Lord shows them here that their own efforts can never cover the shame and guilt of sin. They need a clothing which only the Lord can make for them. Adam and Eve would have never thought of taking animal skins to cover themselves. Only God knew truly how to deal with the problem of sin by death and by the shedding of blood. God promised Adam, threatened him, in the day that you eat from the tree, you shall surely die. Death was the penalty, the sign of God's wrath against sin, but the first one to die was not Adam. It was an animal sacrifice for the covering of Adam's sin. All of this was a further revelation of the Savior who was promised. A further revelation of what he would do. He would be the fulfillment of all sacrifices. And by his blood, he would take away all the guilt and shame of sin. And by his righteousness, he would provide the white robes that sinners need to be covered and to stand in the presence of God. It was God alone who made these garments. It was his work which he initiated for them. Adam and Eve did not make these garments. They had no part in these garments. God alone came to them and God alone made the garments and God clothed them with the garments he had made. The Lord God was the one who made the garments of skin for Adam and for his wife and he was the one who clothed them in the garden. And what we learn here by God's making these garments is that sinners need clothing in the presence of God. This is what the Lord is saying. Sinners must be clothed in my presence. Their sin must be covered. They must be clothed in holiness to come before me. And I am the only one who knows how to clothe them. Clothing is most important in the presence of God and Clothing becomes a theme throughout the rest of the scripture from Genesis to the book of Revelation. The Old Testament priests, they all needed priestly garments to be clothed in their priestly garments when they entered into the holy place of the tabernacle. Isaiah said in chapter 61 in verse 10, he said, My soul exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus gives the parable of the wedding feast. And he said that when the king came to look over the dinner guests, he saw that there was a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, 
How did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called but few are chosen. That man needed wedding clothes to come into the wedding feast. And we need clothes of holiness to come into the presence of the great king. John tells us in the book of Revelation, chapter 27, of that great multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation before the throne and before the land, they are all clothed in white robes. And John asked the elder, who are they and where have they come from? And the elder said, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and they have made them white in the blood of the lamb. Sinners need clothing for the shame and the guilt of their sin to be covered. And only the Lord God can give that covering. And all of this has come to its fulfillment in the promised Savior here in the Garden of Eden, in the blood and the righteousness of the Son of God who was to come. Adam and Eve could only see these things dimly from a distance. But it was enough to give them hope that though they had been banished from God's temple in the garden, God was not finished with the human race. And he would send another one who would open a new and living way back into the holy place. And he would send one who could clothe us in, in white garments of his righteousness and restore us back into fellowship with God. And this is what Jesus Christ has done for us. In Christ, we are restored back into fellowship with God. We'll turn to a couple of books in the New Testament to see this. And the first is in the book of Ephesians. We'll look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And we read in verse 18, and Paul here, he speaks of the Gentiles, unbelievers in this world. He says they are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. I read this verse because this is a description of what Adam has given to all the human race, the alienation the separation that all men have and no access and no fellowship with God. We turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. And Paul says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Here again, a description of the alienation that has come to us from Adam. And Paul uses those words in this verse, separated, excluded, or alienated, strangers with no hope and without God in the world. But then he tells us now in verse 13 what Christ has given to us. He says, but now, 
But now with the coming of Christ, in Christ Jesus, in union with him, you who were formerly far off, far off as Gentiles, but far off spiritually, far off without any relationship with God, far off without any privilege of knowing him and having any fellowship with him, far off like Adam and Eve when they were cast out of the garden, far off and alienated from him. But now, he says, in Christ Jesus, by the work of Jesus Christ, you who were far off have been brought near. You have been brought near again, back into fellowship with God, brought near back to know him and to have access to him once again. You who were far off have now been brought near to him. And how were we who were so far off brought near? He tells us only by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Christ, only by the washing of his blood, by the removal of our sins, which were the barrier between us and God, only by the shedding of his precious blood, we who were so far off have now been brought near. The blood of Christ is the only way to restore fellowship of sinners with God. Our sins were given to him. His righteousness was given to us so that no matter how far off we might have been, we can be brought near and back to him once again. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. We look down to verses 17. Verse 17 in this chapter, he says, But he, Christ, came and preached peace to, those, to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him, he says, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So Christ, in his gospel, he has gone to all the nations of the earth, every tribe and tongue and people, they may now be brought near back to God so that through Christ, both Jews and Gentiles, we both have our access in one spirit to God the Father. Sinners in every place in the world, to the ends of the earth, sinners are now brought through the gospel back into fellowship with God so that we all have this same way of access to the Father through the mediation of Christ and in the grace of the one Holy Spirit. In chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul says this, In whom in Christ we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Christ the mediator, bringing us back now with boldness and confident access to the Father through faith in him. The cherubim, the cherubim with his flaming sword once guarded the way of access to the garden. But now one far greater than that cherubim, one with power infinitely above that cherubim has come not to guard, not to guard the entrance, 
Not to keep men out of the presence of God, but the mighty one, Jesus, has now come to open the access and our return to the Father through faith in him. Paul wrote this letter from a prison cell. In a prison, men are filled with fear. Paul here is filled with boldness in his prayers to God. In a prison, doors are locked and bolted shut. But Paul had open access to the throne of God in heaven. In prison, men have no hope. Paul had great confidence in the Lord and in his fellowship with the Father. And we all have the same in whom all we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So all the ruin that Adam brought has been taken away by our Lord Jesus Christ. In Adam, we were alienated, but Christ has come and taken our alienation upon himself in his death upon the cross when he cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Adam was overcome by Satan's temptation. The Son of God has appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. Adam brought a curse upon the whole world. Christ came and took the curse upon himself and redeemed us from the curse. Thorns came into the world by Adam. Christ wore a crown of thorns to the cross. And when Jesus cried, it is finished. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing that the way into the presence of God had now been opened by him. In Adam, we have alienation. In Christ, we have access and fellowship to him restored. We turn in our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10. And verse 19. He says, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter into, to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. A most astonishing statement for us who were once banished out of the presence of God. Now we are told that we can enter into the holy place. Not the holy place of the Garden of Eden which was God's holy place on earth, but the holy place of heaven itself into the place of his glory and his majestic presence into his true sanctuary in heaven. We have confidence to enter into that holy place by the blood of Jesus. If we are looking to Jesus' blood and believing in him, as our great high priest, then we are able to enter in without fear, without trepidation, without wondering whether we will be welcomed. 
but we come, we may come with confidence and we may come with full assurance by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with, with a sincere heart in the full assurance of faith. Confidence, boldness, and the full assurance of faith. Why? Because of what the blood of Jesus Christ means to God the Father. Because nothing could be more precious and more valuable to God the Father than the blood of his beloved Son. Nothing can ever cleanse away our sins. Nothing can ever purify us more deeply more thoroughly, more completely than the blood of Jesus, leaving us without any spot to be found after we are cleansed in his blood. Nothing is more powerful to take away his wrath than the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. One sacrifice by one sacrifice, he has perfected us forever. This is what he says earlier in verse 10. He says, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And verse 12, but he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And verse 14, by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified by the one offering of the blood of Jesus our sins have been once and for all time removed from us and we have been cleansed in the sight of God so that we may have confidence before him to enter in to the holy place Adam when he was in his innocence, he could be banished. He could be banished from fellowship with God by his sin, and he was. But we can never be banished by our sin. We can never be cast out from fellowship with God ever again because we have his promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness by the blood of Jesus. What an astonishing relationship or arrangement this is for us, right in the center of our fellowship with God the Father, is this arrangement that we may confess our sins and he will always be faithful and righteous to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sinners like us, we need this to maintain our fellowship with the Father. Adam's acceptance with God was in his own righteousness. Our acceptance with God is in the righteousness of the beloved Son of God. 
Adam's righteousness was on earth. Our righteousness is in heaven at the right hand of God. Adam's righteousness was changeable. Our righteousness can never be changed for all eternity. There is nothing more beautiful, more pure, more lovely in the sight of God the Father than the righteousness of his beloved Son. And that righteousness is our righteousness by which we appear before him. We must bring these two things together, that we are cleansed and purified by the precious blood of Jesus, a cleansing that is so complete and thorough, there is not a spot of any sin that can be found after we are cleansed in his blood. And then we are clothed in his most beautiful and glorious robe of righteousness that he so freely gives to us. Can you see, can you not see how attractive we must be in the sight of God the Father? What could be more desirable to him than one who is cleansed in the blood of his beloved son and then is clothed in his perfect righteousness? Who could he desire to have fellowship with more than one cleansed in the blood of Jesus and clothed in his righteousness? The Lord desired to be with Adam and Eve and walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day. But he must have exceedingly higher desires and greater delight in fellowshipping with us who are washed in the blood of his Son and clothed in his perfect righteousness. In Jesus Christ, we are more welcome into the presence of God than Adam ever was, more lovely, more beautiful in his sight than Adam could ever be. Adam had to live with that dark cloud of the threat that he could lose his fellowship with God. We can never lose our fellowship with him. We can never lose our fellowship with him because we have his promise that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Even Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. We have confidence, the writer says, to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We could turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 for a moment. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read here, but he says, but you have come to Mount Zion. He means you have already come. This is not something future, this is present. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and to the heavenly Jerusalem and to the myriads of angels and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. 
and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. This is what we have already come to. And we have entered into this heavenly kingdom by the blood of Jesus, already accepted. We are known to that kingdom in heaven. Our companions are there, the saints who are made perfect, the angels of that glorious city. And we are members of the church, enrolled in heaven, but the church which is on earth. And it is all by the blood of Jesus. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says we have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We who were once the outcasts of the kingdom of heaven have now been brought near and are citizens of that world above. Our last passage is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. And I'll read the first six verses, the first five verses. And John says, And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and there shall no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and his bondservants shall serve him and they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads and there shall no longer be any night and they shall not need have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God shall illumine them and they shall reign forever and ever. Revelation here ends what God began back in Genesis. The garden of Eden, the garden of that paradise which was lost has now been restored with a garden of exceeding glory, beauty beyond everything, anything that was ever made in the beginning. And it is the eternal dwelling place of God himself in the new heavens and the new earth. And he has come down from heaven to set up his throne and to tabernacle and be among men. The river which flowed back in Eden in the beginning that river has now become a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The tree of life that was in the midst of the Garden of Eden, it now lines the streets of the city on either side of the river for all to eat, and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. The light of the sun in the beginning is needed no more because the light of this garden is from the Lord himself who illumines it. And we do not need to wait for him to come and walk with us in the garden in the cool of the day. For he will always be with us and we will always be before his throne 
and we will see his face and his name shall be on our foreheads. We shall serve him in perfect obedience and there shall never be any fear that we will be cast out again for there will never be any sin and there will never be any curse. The devil and his angels and all the wicked and all evil has been purged and destroyed from this world. This is what awaits us as believers by the blood of Jesus. And Jesus says to us from Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7 tonight, he says to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. When we die, we immediately go to be with Christ, who is already there and waiting for us. We are of good courage, Paul says, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And when death comes, Jesus will say to us, as he said to the thief on the cross, truly I say to you, today, today you shall be with me in paradise. This is the garden of paradise now perfected by Jesus by his blood that he has shed, by his righteousness that he clothes us with. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the glorious gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ, that those who are alienated may come and they may find grace and mercy, and they may return in access to God the Father. We pray that you would bless your word to us now and that you would use it as the word of the living God to sanctify us, to strengthen our hearts, and to give us fresh hope in your great salvation. Bless now as we partake of the Lord's Supper, and we pray that you would hear us in Jesus' name. Amen.